so I studied economics in college, which at the time felt very good. What I, I literally did is I opened up the book of all of the majors and I found the one that I thought sounded like I could make a million dollars right off the bat and then just never work again. Turns out nobody wants a four-year economics person for anything. The best I could do is any job description that required a you know business degree or something in finance or anything, I could kind of slip in under the radar and be like, hey, I've got one of those general ones. That's how I ended up at the company. This is Walter. Walter is a highly motivated professional in the finance industry. When he graduated from college, he was ready to take life head on and build a career that would prove lucrative and gain long-term financial success. The year is 2012. The financial service industry is still reeling from the 2008 financial crisis. I graduate out of college and me and a few friends, we try and do this business venture thing. It doesn't work out. Glad I did it, but it doesn't work out. So I find myself kind of back at home and just kind of looking for a job. I had no tangible experience, right? In hindsight, one of the things that I never did in college was think about what type of job that I wanted or do any sort of networking towards a position that I wanted. So of course, you know, my mom is asking everyone she knows for any sort of lead on a job that I could possibly apply for. So someone recommends this company and they had a position open, which I applied for, and I got an interview. An interview that would be Walter's first big break into the finance industry. As a recent graduate looking to ignite his career, this company seemed like an excellent resume builder and the experience he needed to climb the corporate ladder. What he didn't realize was he was about to accept a position with a company that buried its employees in work and had a revolving door of turnover from top to bottom. My name's Carly, and this is Toxic Workplace, a podcast that gives a platform for people to share their stories of working in a destructive environment. I spent the first seven years of my career within a toxic workplace, and let me tell you, it kills your spirit. This podcast is here to expose what goes wrong in these companies, and hopefully, it'll spark a change to make it right. In this episode, we talk to Walter, who found himself grinding away in a company that put zero attention on its people and full focus on profits. This created a firm of high turnover and extreme burnout. The interview was the typical interview you could imagine, where two or three different groups of leadership throughout the company came in, asked a bunch of questions. Hey, how do you do this? How do you handle a situation? Give all those kinds of examples. The first red flag in a journey and road that eventually was full of red flags came in the interview process. After I talked to one of the groups of leadership, one of the managers there stayed behind. She's like, listen, I'm going to tell them not to hire you. And I was like, wow, why would you do that? And she's like, you're coming in with a pretty analytical degree. This position is not what they're telling you it is. It's a super easy data entry position. You're going to get bored out of your mind and you're going to leave. She's like, I'm literally going to tell them not to give you an offer and you shouldn't take it. And I was like, well, that lady doesn't know what she's talking about. Turns out she definitely did. This is the kind of red flag people always wish for in hindsight. You know, the I wish someone would have warned me about what I was about to get into sort of thing. But when you're a 20-something-year-old kid trying to get your foot in the door to start your career, you leave the blinders up so that nothing gets in the way of your dreams. 
This was definitely the case for Walter, who wasn't ready to hear that the opportunity knocking on his door wasn't quite what he thought it was. The line that was told to me that I kind of took, and in fairness, it's my fault, was, well, get the job, and then you can always get a different job and leave. So I was like, all right. So, you know, I got the offer. It wasn't a lot in terms of money or anything. And then, you know, I was like, all right, I'll be here for two weeks, and then I'm out. Turns out I ended up there for seven years. But, like, you know, it's a a long series of bad decisions on my part. So... The second red flag was when I started the job and I showed up. Nobody seemed to know what team anybody was on, who anybody reported to, or what anybody should be doing. What had happened is the company had acquired another smaller firm in Texas. And the line that had been communicated to the whole office that was in Texas was, We're going to maintain a Texas office, and we're just going to turn it into an extension of the one that we have here. Then, three weeks before I got hired, they told everybody that their jobs are terminated. They're getting, quote, substantial packages. In order to get their package, they had to stay on to train the new teams that were being brought on to do their jobs. So when I first arrived, my very first week, there's this very short like, hey, welcome to the company. Here's what we do. Okay. My job was to replace an operational person uh, from Texas. All right. As a recap, Walter's company acquired a small firm in Texas, told the small firm that it would be maintained, but that the processes and procedures from Walter's company would be implemented, basically an extension of the main branch. Shortly thereafter, the company announced that they were terminating everyone at the Texas branch, but that the terminated employees had to train their replacements on how to do their jobs. And if they didn't train their replacements, they wouldn't receive a severance package. This is the first of many instances that show how this profit-hungry firm had no empathy for its people and that all the focus was on the profits. The merger was deceitful because Walter's company communicated that nothing would change other than implementing the standards and procedures from the headquarters, but they quickly changed their mind. And look, I get it, businesses need to be profitable, but this almost seems like torture, forcing someone to train the replacement in order to get a severance pay These terminated employees had their hands tied. I can't help but think that these employees were somehow lucky to get let go from a company culture that would have run them to the ground had they stayed. So they show me to my desk and they had rented out a campus. The entire company, which at that point, I don't know how many people it was, it's probably about 100, is jammed into these college-like rooms. And there's about 30 people, maybe 20 people in a room with like phones on literally like plastic fold-out desks. So for the first three days, I've never met anyone I'm supposed to report to. I have no idea what I should be doing. And then I'm just sitting inside of this college classroom with all these calls happening chaotically around me. And I'm just sitting there like twiddling my thumbs, looking at my computer like, oh, okay. My manager ended up being Andy. He was one of the worst managers that I ever had. They didn't decide on the structure of the teams and who was all reporting to Andy until the third day of everybody being there. The recurring theme of this company is the leadership is only concerned with revenue generating opportunities. 
once they acquire one, they find it and then they bring the acquisition or whatever it is in. And then they push all the details of how is this going to work down. And then they just walk away. And it's up to the teams to figure out the best way to do things and how things should be done and uh, all those sorts of things. And whenever an issue would arise, like which it frequently did, let's say a client gets angry because something was mismanaged or handled. It was never a conversation of, okay, how do we fix this client and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? It was always from the perspective of whose fault is this? Why did they do that? And when are they going to get fired next? There was never a downward leadership. It was always blame down until you're not the one who's getting in trouble anymore. You know, when you're in a kind of like an operational position where you've never really been told or taught how to do anything, but you know, if something happens, you're the one who's like holding the bag on everything. It creates a pretty stressful and terrible environment. Fortunately, what happens is the leadership who really care and they want to change things and improve things end up getting, you know, the curse of competence where if they fix something, then all of a sudden everyone's dumping as much stuff as they can on them until they become either so burnt out that they don't want to do it anymore or they're caring so much that they're no longer, they're, they're not able to actually accomplish things anymore because they've got a hundred different strings to pull. The mentality of this company is clear. They don't care how it gets done, just get it done. Even if it's at the expense of the harmony of the corporate culture. When Walter started, he didn't even know who he was reporting to for the first three days until Andy, his direct supervisor, stepped in. There was a complete lack of direction from the top as to what employees were to be doing and how they were supposed to do it. If an issue arose, there was no accountability or ownership of the issues from the top and fingers would be pointed at the bottom. The issue here is that managers and directors were not working alongside their employees. So they couldn't hold anyone accountable even if they wanted to, not even themselves. In fact, Walter consistently caught Andy playing computer games in his office. So he had these privacy screens later on where you have to stand directly in front of the computer monitor in order to actually see it. And for months, like he would be in his little corner on his computer just playing Candy Crush for, I'm not even joking, weeks uh, we were sitting in a we were sitting at a particular angle and there was a glass wall behind him where the reflection when you stood at a certain point you could see the screen we would literally check like me and my buddy just like hey it's like three o'clock let's just check in it's like oh yeah level 142 get it dude the third red flag when i was there was we had a mandatory overtime window coming he literally was doing like a weekly, hey, everybody, what's going on kind of thing. And he's like, hey, guys, just so you know, the quarterlies are coming in next week. So we're going to do mandatory overtime for two weeks starting this date. And you got to do 10 hours. Unfortunately, I have to leave at three. Anyway, and then he just kept talking. This is one of many reasons why uh, he ended up not liking me. But I was like, I was like, hold on. I was like, wait, are you telling me that we're all doing mandatory overtime and you as our manager aren't? I looked around because I was like, everybody should be like upset about this. Everybody was just like looking down like, I don't want any part of this. So I was already kind of marked from his perspective for several things. That was the last straw where he's like, well, fuck that guy. Like, I'm going to get him. Oh, that was like month two. 
or something like that. Uh, it was it was really early on. You have to remember at month two, I'm still in this mindset of like any day, like I'm going to get the call of that Accenture contract and I'm out of this place. I'm like, what are they going to do to me? There's no way I'm here past July. Once Walter was on Andy's shit list, Andy tried to make his life at the company miserable. It seemed like Andy was looking for the smallest misstep for Walter to make so that he could have a reason to write him up or even fire him. They told me that I would be cross-trained across two uh, separate teams. And I was supposed to be a cross-trained analyst for both teams. I think Andy put a stop to that when he didn't like me anymore. And that's when he put me into that manual team that just did valuation updates. It was like at that point that he kind of decided like, you're going to either die here or you're going to leave. Either way, I win. So the first performance valuation, you're brought into the room. It's Andy and then our team lead or whatever. And they're in there and they, they hand me the performance review and like, I'm looking through it and it's got, you know, blah, blah, blah indicators. And then I look at one and I forget what they called it, but it was very low. And I was like, why is this so low? And they're like, oh, that's a team average. And I was like, you can't put a team average on a performance review of an individual. They're like, oh, well, there's no way you can actually do an indicator for that. I explained how you would make a very easy indicator (laughs) to have an individual for it. And they're like, I don't think that would work. They came up with it and there was no one who was double checking it to make sure that it was real or relevant. Walter tells me his company had an HR department, but they weren't part of the evaluation process. Later, Walter tells me that he eventually wrote his own evaluation and turned it into his boss. But this wasn't a self-evaluation. It was written for his boss to give to him. What credibility does an evaluation have if it's inaccurate or based on false metrics? The purpose of giving an evaluation is to help an employee see their strengths and to look for ways to grow and develop within the company. If it doesn't carry any validity, then people are just going through the motions, wasting everyone's time. But that wasn't a concern for this company. This is the point where I almost walked out and quit. And in hindsight, maybe I should have. But I literally got up from that and I like walked outside to like just leave just to be like, well, I'm done here. And I ended up calling my dad and talking to him. And he reinforced the idea of you should have a new job before you quit your old one, even if it's terrible. So I ended up at a car dealership through some friends connections as like a lot manager, parking the cars, doing all that kind of stuff. And this is an important lesson that I learned there. I remember specifically the manager of the dealership setting down our lot manager teams, like three or four of us sitting there and then asking us like, what's going on with you? What do you guys need? You know, what's happening? And it was the first time I think I experienced a leader not being, this is what I need you to do for me. Dead, the perspective was, you guys are doing a great job. What can I do to help you? Do you need anything or do you have any ideas? And it was a good refreshing like thing to happen there. I was like, oh, wait, no, like dreams do come true. You know, like rainbows do exist <laughs> out there in the wild. Unfortunately, winter came and it was very miserable to be a lot manager in zero degrees. And I got a phone call from the girl who was the assistant to the manager. And she's like, hey, 
I heard you are looking for a position. I've got one for you. Would you be interested in coming back? It was zero degrees. My hands were freezing. And I was just like, yep. And so I went right back to the team that I had quit and got out of. Walter's second time around in this company would prove to be even more toxic than the first. Opportunities for prestigious positions here didn't necessarily mean a better working arrangement. It came with a lot of promises, right? What it ended up becoming is a lot of people trying to change things and then not being able to accomplish anything because the mindset was always just bring in the next revenue generating thing. If it doesn't work, we still get paid anyway, so they'll just figure it out. That's what started kind of my next my next phase while I was there. During that time, I started to kind of doing a lot more internal networking. One of the people that I started to help out and get a good rapport with uh, was the head of tax reporting. And she, one day, put down her laptop, walked into her boss's office, set it down and said, I quit. And just walked out. It was during the tax reporting season. There was another acquisition that was brought on. And it was another perfect example where they brought on this acquisition, say, in October. There was 150,000 accounts that they had reporting obligations for that were due um, you know, by 1231 in some circumstances, January 31st for many others. And they had no idea how they were going to accomplish the reporting obligations. And they literally pushed it all on her and just said, you have to figure this out before like, you know, the reporting obligations happen. And uh, her position became available and I uh, applied for it and uh, I ended up getting it. You heard right. 150,000 clients with reporting obligations and only one tax person to funnel it through. There's no lifesaver being thrown here. Zero options for this tax manager to get out of an impossible situation other than just throwing in the towel. Let's say each client required 30 seconds of time. That's 1,250 hours to get these reporting obligations finished within a window of four months. That would be almost 80 hours per week of nonstop work. No bathroom breaks and no coffee talk. But Walter being young and ambitious saw this as an opening for him to move up within the firm and took it as a challenge. He gave it everything he had to prove he was the man for the job. So it reported directly to the president of the company. The interview itself was him just talking for 30 minutes about all sorts of things, anything. Uh, Sometimes it was about the job. Sometimes it was about the new house that he bought. And it was just this random assortment. And then he just walked away. And then that afternoon, all of a sudden I get an email from him and it's a email that he has blind forwarded me that was sent to him. And it was like an issue with the tax reporting. He doesn't say anything. And so I was like, oh, well, this is the real interview. So I just started fixing him. And then I would always keep him like BCC'd or whatever. Walter passed the president's test, who he'll start referring to as Mike here in a second. He jumped right into the heat of tax season in an extremely understaffed department of one, which Mike quickly realized wasn't going to work out. So he brought on a new employee named Chris, who would eventually add to the issues. 
So Chris gets hired. He is equal to me in terms of title. He's incredibly charming. He's so easy to talk to. Super fun guy. I was so excited. Great. Like this is somebody who I would very easily sit next to you know, 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, whatever. What what I ended up finding out within the first two weeks is that he had completely made up his resume. He had no experience. He had no technical skills. He didn't even know how to use Excel. In the very beginning, I went to my boss and I was like, this isn't going to work. He can't do any of this. He, he doesn't have any of the skills required to accomplish this. And then my boss would change the subject and then just leave. So he, he refused to even acknowledge it. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to have to deal with this. So I was like, all right, we're going to work together to get you to the point where you're adding value. After about four or five months, I think it came to a point where he realized, meaning Chris, that he was never going to be able to accomplish this job, or at least it would take years for him to get up to speed. And Mike is never around to tell him that he has to do it. So he doesn't have to do anything. And he didn't. He just he just stopped. He stopped doing things. And nothing happened. There were regulatory obligations that were missed. There were fines that came in. And it was never a, well, let's get rid of him. It was like, Walter, you need to fix this. Why wasn't this done? So now Walter is not only faced with a pile of work he can't possibly get done, including notices and a multitude of new fires that need to be put out, but he is working alongside someone who literally does nothing and gets away with it. And the president, who's in charge of the department, is never around. Walter said weeks would go by and his boss was nowhere to be found. And even when he did tell him about the issue with Chris, his boss didn't want to hear it. He was stuck and frustrated. When the fines started coming in through the finance department, the finance department contacted Mike and they're like, hey, we owe $20,000 to the state of Utah. Why did this happen? It wasn't about, hey, you made this error, you fix it. It was one of you two do this. Chris knew that he wasn't going to do it. And he knew that I was going to, because what else am I going to do? I'm not his manager. I can't write him up. I can't go to HR and try and explain the situation. So what can I really do? If I sit there and chew him out, then like I'm a piece of shit asshole, you know? So I have to do one of two things is I either just eat it and I just sort it out, and then try as best I can to get him involved in as many things that he can do to help. So that's what I was attempting to do. And every time I had the chance to talk to Mike about this, I would bring it up. And that's where a new narrative started that ended up following me to the bitter bloody end. And that was, I'm a bad communicator. Every time I would bring it up to Mike, like in quarterly reviews or the few times a year I would see it, he'd be like, you got to learn how to communicate better. I don't think this is the proper way to approach this. He would be gone for weeks. And when quarterly reviews came up, he would literally send me a blank one and say, fill this out. 
and I would fill out my own quarterly review. Then I would send it to his administrative assistant. She would forge his signature on that. I guess she sent it to HR or something. Yeah, there's no accountability. No one's watching. I never put in PTO under him because he would never approve it. He would never look at the HR thing. I would literally, I'd email him. I'd be like, I'm going to be out for three days. And he'd just be like, okay. As you can tell by the lack of leadership from the president, this company's direction is floundering. The executive level positions here have a revolving door of turnover. Walter tells me there were 10 different executive level employees during the seven years that he worked there, which is more than one exit per year. One of the executives was named Rob, who was initially brought in as the chief of staff, which Walter says was clearly a made up position, and eventually replaced the CIO, who just one day no longer worked at the company. Meanwhile, Walter's boss sent in a director-level employee named Jim to help unbury Walter from the tax reporting nightmare that was out of control. Jim became obsessed with impressing Rob and started shoving Walter out of the limelight. So we had this software onboarding that was going to happen, and Jim was like, all right, I'll just lead it. It didn't mean I'll lead it. It means we have an executive lead in Rob. I'm going to be the one who communicates everything to him, and then you'll just do everything. It ended up being a disaster, (laughs) and I'm the one who kind of ended up having to do everything. And this is one of the worst days I think that I ever had at the company. Imagine on a week, the printing approvals of a reporting obligation are due to a vendor on Friday. On Wednesday, a file gets loaded. On Thursday, we find out that 125 or so thousand of the forms on that file were incorrect and they got sent to clients. So Thursday evening at around 5 p.m., people start freaking out. Rob, the executive, is trying to look for answers, and Jim like hustles into his office. And I knew I had to get in there because it was going to turn into a blame thing, right? So I just kind of invite myself in, and Jim is just explaining how he's already contacted all of these advisors and told them, hey, we're going to have this fixed and we're going to have corrections sent out by Friday at noon. And I was like, Jim, the vendor hasn't even acknowledged that there's a problem, much less committed to a 12 noon correction and reprint. You can't say that, but it was too late. And then both of them just looked at me and they just said, You're just going to have to contact the vendor and make this happen. And then everyone just left. Talk about getting dumped on and set up for failure. Jim made a promise that he wasn't going to actually fulfill himself. Mind you, it was Jim running the show at this point in the tax department, yet he refused to take accountability and fix his mistake, leaving Walter to the wolves. An underlying theme in this story is the understaffing of the company. Walter was constantly buried in work. He emphasizes the push from the top to get things done at all costs and in the name of profitability. This company wasn't looking for strategic leaders to foster organic growth or empower its people. They were looking for yes men to push down on employees with no mercy. 
In this sort of forceful environment, the opportunity for professional development and personal growth is slim to none. All focus is on the numbers. This strategy also didn't fare well with the revolving door of executives that the company had over the years. Walter says the C-suite of executives was always changing. I had six different executive changes throughout all this. Actually, there's there's 10 total. There was a, a new COO who came in, let's say a year before I started this job. For whatever reason, I still don't know, I never asked, but he was met at the door by the head of HR and then let go. Like a C-level, instead of having like a meeting bringing him in, the head of HR met him at the door and just said, hey, we're letting you go and just bounced. I'm assuming it's a board level decision. I don't know how that works at that level. I know it's real strange up high, but like being met at the door, that's in front of everyone at the, it's a glass building. Everyone can see outside. It's the shittiest way I can possibly think of going. And this is a recurring theme. Executives would disappear all the time, suddenly. And uh, it had already happened two or three times before that. And it, it would kind of continue to happen after that, where there'd be no notification. All of a sudden, everybody would just know that an executive was gone because they're just, they missed meetings and like the rumors would start. And then a week and a half or so later, there would be an all employees email and then like a subline. Also, blah, 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 has stepped down from their position as blah, blah, blah. And then that's it. Then there would just be these gaps. There was no COO for eight months in between those two. And then there was another gap for another like eight to 12 months after that. There's just nothing there. There's just nothing there. In a firm with over 100 employees, having a solid leadership foundation is essential to the success of a business and its people. If a company can't get its leaders to stay, then any sort of overall strategy and vision falls to the wayside. Employees are confused, there's less buy-in, and a major disconnect forms between the top and bottom. The other issue here is transparency. Executives would be let go as they walked into the front door or they would just quietly disappear. Either way, there was never any real explanation given to the employees, which causes speculation. I was curious about what the Glassdoor reviews of this company showed. When I went to the website, I saw headlines like, run, don't walk, you're just a number, and professionally embarrassing, which read that the company mission was constantly changing and there wasn't any organic growth whatsoever. Not only did the company not care about its employees, they also didn't care about their clients. Walter said that at one point, they were trying to get certain clients to leave by providing poor service. There was many times where a, a customer or a group of customers would have some issue. And then like the decision-making process was, if there's 400 customers who are going to leave if we don't fix one issue, but that issue will be more expensive to fix than those 400 customers like revenue is forget them let them leave like we're not gonna like proceed with it so there was always groups of customers going out but they were always acquiring new things one of the acquisitions that they had done the huge one that made my predecessor quit was arguably genius it, it was a business to business trust that we had acquired and the contracts between the actual businesses and the trust company stated, 
if you were to leave the company, you will owe X amount of dollars as a leaving fee. The amount that they paid for the acquisition was less than the total fees that they would get if every customer left. So when they bought it, they bought it to literally squeeze every customer out of it so they could get the revenue fees of those customers leaving because it was more profitable for the customers to leave than it was for them to actually maintain and manage the accounts themselves. So basically, they purchased another company in order to get the client cancellation fees. It doesn't seem legal, but it is. Clearly, they're not in the business of servicing clients, but in the business of quick and dirty money. On the company website, it reads that their track record of service excellence is unmatched in the industry and that they offer optimized solutions, processes, and service to its clients. It amazes me what simple marketing can do for a company. After seven years, Walter was at his wit's end. By this time, he had changed positions and was now reporting to a manager named Cammie. And Cammie reported to an executive named Rich. The dynamic between Cammie and Walter would eventually lead to Walter's exit from the company. She started out really great, but eventually it turned into if there was ever an issue with the tax reporting that came down from the executives to her, she would then blame down to me. And then uh, she would be like, I don't know why it hasn't been fixed yet. Let me make sure that he's doing it. I'm a true believer in the only problem that any company has is its leadership. Good leadership and bad leadership, I think, is what really makes and breaks an experience in a company. So at this point, I was just checked out. I didn't care. I was cruising. Like, I had given up. I'm just doing whatever I, I needed to to just kind of get out for the day. And we were in a meeting once, and... I was told multiple times that Rich was the one who approved descoping all of the issues. So I had a very bad taste in my mouth for him. Later, I had found out it wasn't him, but that's a whole other story. So we were in a meeting once and I made the comment. I was just like, yeah, I don't have a lot of respect for Rich's decisions, which sent Cammy to the moon. So I got a formal write-up for poor communication and I remember like walking in and then like she handed to me and I, I literally I was like, are you, is this a joke? I was like, it's okay. Let's go to HR and let's talk to HR about it right now. And she had to, right? Like you can't probably say that in her say no, right? So we went to HR and I explained everything to them about all sorts of things. And magically things started to change better after that. Four to five months after that, she would come down to me and my coworker and she would just say things like, blah, 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 executive says that I don't know what I'm doing. And the only reason he says that is because he doesn't trust women and he's a sexist. And I'm just sitting there like, you wrote me up for saying I just don't respect the decisions of someone and then you say this shit. And then, like, she would say things like, that bitch is going to get what's coming to her about, like, another manager or something like that after things. Like, 
It was just a complete shit show. You can never say anything bad about those up. You're throwing stones at like Mount Olympus, but fuck everyone down below. Like they're <laughs> you just get shit on. She had caught on to the narrative that Mike had started that I'm a poor communicator. And then she was leveraging that in situations where I was asking for things or like, hey, I need to go talk to HR because I'm being asked to do too much or two things, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, my coworker quit. She found better pastures elsewhere. So I found myself in a situation where I was started to do my job and her job. There was another girl in another department that went on maternity leave. And there was a process or two that she did. I was the only other person who knew how to do it. So then I was asked to do her job as well. I was literally doing two and a half people's jobs every day. At that point, I was so mentally over it, like I was just kind of on cruise control. So I had put in PTO. She, meaning Cammie, had never approved it, but she was sending me emails like, hey, before you're out, make sure you talk to blah, 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 or make sure you take care of blah, 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 right? And then the day of there's a few things i was working on but she asked if i was going to have something done before i left and i told her i can't because it's just not enough time and she freaked out i think it was some executive wanted it and they wanted it by friday and i was like i can't finish it i have to leave she was like i'm not going to prove your pto you have to come back in and you have to finish it and so i told her that's fine but like, we're going to talk to HR about it on Thursday, which is the next day. And so she's like, okay, that's fine. So there was a meeting sent to me by HR for like 11 o'clock on Thursday morning. And then at 1030, it got moved to Friday at 10. Oh, these were the two days where I should have been on vacation. So that Friday at 10 a.m., I log into the, the Zoom call and it's the head of HR and Cami. And before they even said it, I knew it. And I was so happy. And she picked up the piece of paper and she said, this is to notify you of your termination from the company. The company's at risk because of blah, 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 blah. Literally, all I said was, thank you so much. I get it. Bye. I was so happy and relieved just to be done. After seven tireless years of grinding away and giving endless hours to crank out work for unrealistic deadlines, Walter gets let go from the company without any sort of recognition or gratitude. And it's not like that bothered Walter. He was relieved and happy to be able to move on in his career. But as an outsider, I think it's clear that this company had no compassion for the hard work and efforts its employees gave, and there's no appreciation for Walter's loyalty. I asked Walter why he thinks he stayed in such a toxic environment for so long, and he said it was a matter of acceptance of the situation and the lack of a prospective opportunity elsewhere. There was always this mystical carrot out there that people always saw, including me, where it's like, Man, if I can just solve this one recurring issue that's been bothering hundreds of clients, then maybe someone will be like, here's a raise <laughs> or something like that, which obviously never happened. But for some reason, there was just this line of you should just take care of it because it'll be worth it in the end, even though it never ended up being worth it in the end. Because the company was small enough that you had daily interactions all the way up the chain, 
And a lot of the people in those uh, lower rungs, if you will, had been there long enough that they knew like the family that started it and everything. I think there was maybe once a better culture of, okay, we're all in this together. If you can help me out with this, then, you know, I'm going to help you out. And then as the company grew and, you know, the head kind of started getting far distant from the tail, I think that mentality was still there, but there was no more kind of communication or transition between the two. Looking back, back to those first two weeks where I was like, oh, well, I'll just be here for a little bit until I get that other job. And then seven years later, like I was still waiting. Um, I was getting paid and it was a job and I knew the job and the company well enough. Like I worked with some great people as peers that made coming in and doing things a whole lot easier and better. The leadership itself was was the trash. After a while, I stopped kind of putting in applications elsewhere. And then I just kind of, I don't know, I, I just kind of accepted my fate. Sometimes you have to just bide your time, let fate take its course, and have faith that everything will somehow work out in your favor. We all end up in situations that test our mental strength and endurance. These are the tests that build our character and serve us down the road for things to come. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Do you have a story you'd like to share on our show? Go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com and click on Be a Guest. Fill out the submission information and we'll be in contact. Your story will be told anonymously. All names are changed to protect the privacy of the company and its employees. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank mm-hmm. you.